welcome back to yet another episode of Ball With Y'all. It is so great to be here with you today on April 6th. Once again, we have a full show for you today. So whether you're joining us via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, uh, Breaker, or if you're just checking us out on YouTube at BWI Productions. I know last week we didn't have a show on YouTube, and I would like to thank the good folks at Xfinity and Comcast for once again foiling our plans. They did that this past fall with the Ole Miss-Alabama game. I didn't, I didn't get to watch that game, and then this past Wednesday we did not get to put up a show on YouTube as a result of the good services that the Comcast folks provide. But hey, somehow we are back this week, and I will get off my soapbox on that front. However you are joining us, we are so glad that you chose to check us out here, whether it's your Wednesday morning, your Wednesday afternoon, your Wednesday evening, or just another day of the week. You're not limited to Wednesdays like we are, but regardless, we are so glad that you chose to just take a little bit of your time to spend your day with us. Now, where are we going today? Well, we just wrapped up the Final Four this past weekend. We just wrapped up the National Championship game in both the Wens and Women's National Brackets this past Sunday and Monday, respectively. So we'll break down a little bit of what we saw on that front, some of the lessons we learned in the NCAA men's tournament, and what it means for us as SEC fans. Then we'll go into, of course, what we saw this past weekend when it comes to the race that took place at Richmond. It wasn't all that much of an exciting race until the very end, and then we saw a couple different things happen. want to break that down, also take a look at the next race coming up at Martinsville Speedway this weekend. And then we'll wrap up with what I did not expect to happen, and then it happened and I, I my jaw kind of dropped a little bit. We saw some rule changes in the NFL just a little over a week ago, I believe, when it comes to the overtime rules, particularly in the playoffs. I'll break down some of that, give you a little bit of uh, my opinion, my perspective as to why things went down the way they did, how I'm a little bothered as to how things went down, but we'll get into all of that throughout the show today. With that, let's get into story number one. With the NCAA tournament over, I, in the month of March, you know, we know it's April right now, but in the month of March, to suffice to say, there was a great deal of madness. And before I get into the tournament itself, of course, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the women's national champions with the South Carolina Gamecocks going out there, beating UConn in the final. Incredible job to see an SEC team go out there and win yet another national championship to represent us as a conference. Now, as far as the men's side of things, of course, we did not have a single SEC team in the Final Four between Villanova, Kansas, Duke, and North Carolina. The The nightcap was a fan's dream, a sports fan's dream, with Duke and North Carolina facing off in that first-ever rivalry matchup in the NCAA tournament. And then, of course, Villanova and Kansas, that was a little bit of a snooze fest. Uh, you know, Kansas, they kind of gave us, well, they gave me a beautiful appetizer. You know, I had Kansas winning that first off, I had them winning the final, winning their first game in the Final Four, beating Villanova in my actual bracket. You can go check it out. I had Villanova losing to Kansas in the Final Four, so I love that. And then I had Kansas winning the championship. So I was all for what happened Saturday night with Kansas just blowing up, just really just just boat racing Villanova. I love seeing that, and I think a lot of us it really set us up well for what was an incredible game between Duke and Carolina uh, that evening. As far as Kansas's center. Uh, David McCormick, I believe is his name. He, uh, he's a, he's a, he's a, I believe he's a fourth year, fourth year senior now, fifth year senior. Uh, he's in a master's program right now. No, he's a fourth year graduate student. That's what it was. He did his undergraduate degree in three years and he did, he's currently completing his master's program right now in journalism. 
And I say all that because I study journalism. I love the journalism programs across the country. So when I hear that there's a, a young man studying, studying journalism, I get all over it. For example, Four Eyes, uh, what was his name? Uh, Rodrigo Blankenship for, for Georgia, the kicker, who ended up going to the Colts, I believe. And uh, he had an incredible leg, and he was, he was doing incredible things for the Bulldogs. And he's kind of slipped off a little bit in the NFL, but neither here nor there. He was a journalism major, and I loved that about him. Because very rarely do you see communication students uh, do particularly well. You know, sometimes you see general communication, mass communication, that kind of stuff. But a lot of times you see sports management, and those kind of things that don't really apply. When you see guys who, who are studying journalism, that means that they're probably pretty decent at communicating. So I love seeing that. And love it getting to see that McCormick, he was he was just playing bully ball all day against Villanova. And then, of course, when Kansas was shooting their threes, they could not miss a three either in that first game on Saturday. As far as the dream rivalry matchup that I talked about, right? It had an ending that we all hoped for but did not expect that we would see. I said last week, I would love for Duke to have, have lost that game. But I didn't expect it. I was expecting a Kansas-Duke final, and then whatever would happen would happen. But I was like, I would really hope, I would really love if North Carolina would find a way. And they did. And it was beautiful. It almost brought a tear to my eye. It was an incredible finish to a career that, for a long time, I know a lot of us would were just waiting for Coach K to leave. And I can imagine you all feel the same about Nick Saban and so on. And, and honestly, it reminded me, the, the the just absolute depression that would I would have had as a Duke fan on a Saturday night. It would be like, you know, as an Alabama fan, it would be like if Nick Saban was coaching. He'd already announced prior to the season that he was going to retire. He gets to the Iron Bowl, loses the Iron Bowl, but somehow still makes the playoff. And in the playoff semifinal, plays Auburn again and loses again. That is exactly what took place here with North Carolina and with Duke. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it will burn inside your soul for eternity. And so if you, there are any Duke fans out there, I am so, so sorry for what you are having to endure now. I mean, honestly, I don't really care. And I was so delighted to see that Duke lost. But I'm so sorry because if I can only imagine the pain that you're feeling right now, um, definitely I would not want to experience that myself. You know, the moment that that final buzzer sounded too was a great moment because I'd already acknowledged that that I had had Kansas and that I had them winning the national championship game. We knew that. We've discussed that ad nauseum. But what was really cool about it was the moment that buzzer sounded Saturday night with North Carolina beating Duke, I knew that I had won my office bracket. I knew that I had won my church bracket. And I knew, of course, that I had won the ball with y'all bracket challenge. So suffice to say, I was having a great time. And for once, I actually did pretty well. In fact, I think I finished in the 99.7 percentile, something like that, which if you know me, you know that I have not historically done well picking anything, let alone the NCAA tournament. I'm using like the 40, 50, 60 range. So 99.7, I was flying on cloud nine. And then just just two nights later, Kansas goes out there and wins the national championship. And it was just the icing on the cake for what was already a great run for my bracket and for the Kansas Jayhawks. Of course, it was their fourth title, uh, most recent since 2008, when, of course, Mario Chalmers, he was their point guard, who, of course, had a, had a run with the Miami Heat for a little bit, and I believe also the Memphis Grizzlies as well. So really cool moment there for Bill Self. They were down 15 and a half, and at that point in time, I thought all hope was lost. Like, okay, well, I had a good run with my bracket. Oh, well, North Carolina's going to win the championship. 
They stormed back in the second half. They overcame the largest halftime deficit ever in the national championship game. It was an incredible sight to behold. And like I mentioned earlier, David McCormick was the rock for Kansas. Rock, chalk, Jayhawk. David McCormick was that rock. It was an incredible, incredible moment for him because he had overcome so much throughout the season. He was matched up for the most part throughout that game against Baycott, who had been an incredible player for North Carolina. I mean, you even heard it after the Duke game where Coach K comes up to to Baycott. His career's over as a head coach, but he comes over to Baycott and says, hey, listen, I hope you are right. I believe he twisted his ankle in that Duke game. Hope you are right. You are my player of the year. So David McCormick for Kansas is facing off against what, what Coach K has determined to be his player of the year. And he did it incredibly well. And I know Baycott got injured toward the end, but even still, McCormick had an incredible game matched up against one of the better players in the country. Now, what did the tournament teach us this year? And I like to look at this from an SEC lens because we talked about before the parity that goes into the tournament and how it, it kind of teaches us some things about playoff expansion and so on. I'm not going to get into that so much here. But given that we are an SEC show, I think it's important that we break down what this tournament taught us from an SEC lens. For a while now, the SEC has gotten better because in the early 2010s, it was pretty much a Florida and a Kentucky conference, and that was just about it. You didn't really see a whole lot from anybody else. And then as of late, of course, we've seen Auburn get a little bit better and Arkansas get a little bit better and Alabama get a little bit better and several other teams, LSU and uh, the like, right? But what this tournament showed us, with 68 teams getting in and, and I believe six SEC teams getting into that tournament, and none of them going too far at all with the exception of one, what it showed us is that the SEC has absolutely gotten better at basketball, but they still have a great deal of room to grow if they want to be like the ACC and the Big 12. The Big 12 and the ACC, they carry the tournament. I saw a stat where when they were playing teams outside of their own conference or outside of the other conference that I just mentioned. So if the Big 12 and ACC were playing anybody else, not the Big 12 and the ACC, I think they went like 35-2 and two in the tournament or something ridiculous like that. Conversely, of course, when they started to lose games, they were playing teams within their own conference. So Miami lost to Kansas and Baylor lost to North Carolina. So you see Big 12 versus ACC. But otherwise, I mean, even in the end, you had North Carolina and Kansas, Big 12 versus ACC. And that's not a new trend per se, but it's just something that you would have thought would have been figured out by now. And then you start to see some other teams get into the mix there. But yet we have not. And to that point, we only saw one SEC team even get remotely close in the form of Arkansas. And the funny thing about that, of course, if you think about it, if you look at how they're set up for 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 the foreseeable future, for the years to come, I would say Arkansas might be our best bet to kind of break through that glass ceiling, if you will. You know, they, they have a lot of talent returning. Musselman is an incredible coach. They have a lot of talent coming in from a, from a recruiting class standpoint. I believe they also had a transfer or two come in as well. Arkansas is going to be set up well next year. I would not be surprised if they go out there and win the tournament and win the regular season, or the SEC tournament, and also win the regular season championship as well when it comes to SEC play. You got to know Kentucky's going to be there. I don't know what they'll do next year, but they will be there. Alabama's probably going to slip off a little bit because they're losing Jalen Shackelford and they're losing Javon Quinterly, and they lost another guy, Deshaun Holt. He's transferring away, and, and another guy, I believe, is leaving as well. So they're losing a few guys, and I don't know. I understand that they have a pretty strong recruiting class, but what is that? How is the immediate impact of that talent? LSU, almost their entire team transferred away or 
went to the NBA or something in the last week and a half. And then, of course, you have Auburn, who's probably going to take a step back. They, they just had a historic season. They're probably not going to duplicate that here in, 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 in 2022. So with that in mind, you have to imagine that the SEC, you know, if they want to play a prominent role beyond just one team moving forward in the tournament, they have to make some progress here in the near future. It's great to see Arkansas doing well, right? But you would hope that it's more than just Arkansas. You'd hope that it's Kansas, or Kansas, Kentucky. Kentucky, I'm pretty sure, beat Kansas at one point in time this year. Alabama beat Baylor at one point in time this year. Auburn smoked Oklahoma at one point in time this year. I know Oklahoma didn't make the tournament, but still, the point is, Auburn and all these different teams were, were good at playing out of conference. And yet, when they got to the moment where it mattered the most, they all fell apart. Auburn lost to Miami. Granted, we called that, but still, Auburn lost to Miami. Kentucky, we know what happened with St. Peter's. Alabama lost their first game, and I know they they had lost their point guard four minutes in the game, but still, you lost your you, you you lost your first game in the NCAA tournament. LSU, having just fired their head coach, lost their first game of the NCAA tournament, and the story goes on and on. Again, if you want to be taken seriously as a Power Five conference in anything but football, you have to do better in these moments right here. And the SEC has a substantial amount of room to grow before people start to begin or begin to take them seriously in any way shape or form i'd love to see it but it's going to take a considerable amount of time it would seem on to story number two on sunday we saw a race that i i've been aware that richmond has historically been a pretty boring race a race that hasn't really given you a whole lot of excitement i believe i saw something the other day saying that maybe the last exciting race there was maybe as long as eight or nine years ago. So we weren't really expecting a ton when it came to exciting moments, right? Or a lot of cautions. We didn't see a lot of cautions in this race either. A lot of uh, accidents, none of that, really. It was pretty straightforward. And in fact, for the better part of, I would say, 95% of the race, it was pretty ho-hum, right? Blaney was leading for a while, and then when Blaney wasn't leading, it was Christopher Bell. And then when Christopher Bell wasn't leading, William Byron was leading. And then it gets to a point late in the race where you see a bunch of different strategies take place. You have you have some guys who are who are splitting the stages up straight down the middle. So they're pitting they're pitting once a stage, right? And then other guys who are splitting it up kind of in thirds. So they run a run a third of the stage, which is I mean in some cases you know as many as sixty or so laps depending on the situation. You pit and then you come back sixty laps later and you pit and then you run to the end of the stage, right? And we saw Shrex Jr. He did well with that. He, he kind of actually split up his, uh, his strategy there. So in the in the first or in the second stage, he went uh, he he stopped twice. So he he split it three different sections. And in the last stage, he halved it. Whereas Hamlin and Harvick, Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick, they of course ended up going with a two stop little uh, strategy there in the final stage. And that is why ultimately they were in position to win that race. So we saw at the very end. There was a feverish pace at the end for Hamlin and Harvick, the 9, or not the 9, the 11 and the 4. And, uh, you know, what was really wild about it, I believe they were down a lap with about 30 laps to go or so. And, again, it showed you the value of those tires. For the probably the first time this year, if not the first, maybe the second time this year, tires mattered tremendously. You saw the, the speed that William Byron had toward the end of the race just completely fall off. The speed that Martin Truex had 
completely fall off. Now, Truex was catching up to William Byron at one point in time, having a little bit like 11 lap fresher tires than William Byron. But then at the very end, when Truex ended up having 40 or 50 lap, 50 older lap tires than, than Harvick and Hamlin, they blew by him. And ultimately, that was where their, their, their pit crews and their, their crew chiefs played the biggest role on Sunday. So honestly, Hamlin winning, you probably, probably, honestly, his crew chief is the one who won in that race. Yes, I know he drove a great race and he deserved to get that win, but the call that his crew made and the, and the job they did on that car to get it out there and put it in position to win, it's, it's, you, you can't argue it. That was an incredible job by that team. Of course, Ryan Blaney, he took over the points. Well, technically, he's tied with, with Chase Elliott right now as far as the points lead. He owns the tiebreaker because he's won a couple of stages. Um, you know, Ryan Blaney, he's won, he's led in just about, no, he has led in every race this year. And it kind of feels, he, he reminds me a little bit of Chase Elliott in the sense of he keeps getting close, but when it matters most, he falls just a little short. And I know, you know, it's kind of ironic because Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott are pretty close, if not best friends. And Blaney himself has, has been right there. I mean, he was literally right there at Daytona, right? And he's been right there several times throughout the year, and yet he keeps falling short. Now, what are our two takeaways as far as what we saw this past Sunday and some trends that we're seeing? I think there is a bit of a Chase Elliott issue. Um, and I hesitate to say this because you never know. It could Something could change here in the near future. But here's the issue I have, right? So I know I just said that he's tied for the lead in points, which would seem to suggest that he's in great position, which, yes, technically he is in good position, and I'm okay with it. I'm not worried about it per se, but he hasn't won on an oval in 35 races. The last time he won on an oval was at Phoenix to win the championship back in 2020, in the COVID year, of course. He has continuously finished fourth among Hendrick drivers. I think this past Sunday... I would say it went William Byron, Kyle Larson, Alex Bowman, Chase Elliott in that order as far as finishing order. And that's been a routine theme for the Elliott team, for the nine team this year. And also, this has been another point of contention for me and countless other Chase Elliott fans across the country. Alan Gustafson, the crew chief for Chase Elliott, has caused so many problems for Chase. There are countless times he's even expressed his frustration on the radio, I think it was as recent as not this past week, but the week before, saying how many times are we going to get jobbed by Pitt Road, by, by, the, by the job of the crew, or by the decisions that Alan Gustafson, as the crew chief, is making. And there continue to be issues. And for example, what we saw this past Sunday, Chase is in a great position. Gustafson makes one wrong move on the second to last pit stop of the day. Chase is done. Ends up finishing, what, 15th, 12th? I don't know what it was. Pathetic. When you were a guy who was running third place at one point in time in the race, and yes, of course, you know, you weren't probably going to see an, a Hendrick car win, win on, on Sunday or a Chevy win on Sunday, but you come, you could have come close. I mean, William Byron came close. Kyle Larson came close. And one wrong decision by Alan Gustafson sends him to the back. And it's frustrating when you're a Chase Elliott fan knowing that you have the second most recent championship in the sport, and you have the fourth best crew chief on your team. Greg Eyes for Alex Bowman is incredibly, uh, substantially better than than Alan Gustafson. We know the job that Cliff Daniels has done for Kyle Larson in one year. He I went out there, won what ten races, 
an incredible job there. And then, of course, Rudy Fugel for William Byron. It's not even, there's no comparison. Alan Gustafson is by far the fourth worst Hendrick uh, crew chief driver or crew chief out there for probably the second best driver for Hendrick, if not the best driver for Hendrick thus far. It's incredibly pathetic. And you got to think that Chad Knauss and all those guys at Hendrick, Jeff Gordon, are looking at this and considering what the road ahead looks like. Because they're all in on Chase Elliott, but I've got to think that maybe, just maybe, they are not all in on Alan Gustafson. And then the other concern that I have, even if they figure out the Gustafson thing, has Chase Elliott peaked? You know, he he's become the road course king. And, and even then, he didn't win at the road course two weeks ago. But you're usually going to pencil him in as the road course winner whenever there is a road course. So there's five more road courses this year. He'll probably get at least one of them. He might get two or three. But if you think about it, has Chase Elliott peaked? Has he kind of gotten on the downside of his career? And I don't want to be a little dramatic and kind of get into that, but you look at some of the other guys on his own team and across the sport, and there's a lot more of upward trajectory, if you will. And it seems like, for whatever reason, Chase Elliott's kind of plateaued a little bit and might be even going down a tad. And as a Chase Elliott fan, that concerns me, but... I'm not super concerned, but just enough to the point that I think it's a main takeaway from this past Sunday at Richmond. Another takeaway that I had. I don't think that it's all doom and gloom for Brad Keselowski like we once thought. We talked about a week ago that you know Brad Keselowski was hit with that hefty fine or uh, hefty penalty of, I believe it was 100 points that he was docked and 10 playoff points, and he lost his crew chief for four races or something along those lines. Um, you know, he still has minus 10 playoff points. So yeah, that's a problem. And we've talked about that before as to why that's an issue. And he's still sitting just outside the top 30 in points. And we discussed how that could be an issue, even if he wins, right? But the most important thing that I saw on Sunday, he had a pretty decent run. I don't know where he finished per se. I think it was top 15, but he was up toward the top 10 for a while. And that was one of the issues that we saw when, when this penalty was levied. One of the concerns that we had was, okay, I understand the penalty, but how does that team respond? Because they had not been all that good this year so far. And now, somehow, RFK Racing has, has figured it out to the point where they can actually have a pretty decent run where both Chris Busher and Ryan, and, uh, Ryan not Ryan Newman, <laughs> Brad Keselowski, go out there and have strong runs. And... If he continues to have strong runs, he will probably end up finding his way into the playoff. And in fact, I expect that he'll get a win. Heck, he might even get two wins. I think he'll sneak into the playoffs somehow. I don't know how many wins he'll get. I don't know how he'll get there per se. But I think he'll that Brad Keselowski, that Brad Keselowski will sneak into the playoff somehow. He may not advance too far in the playoffs. I don't really think that's the goal per se with this new team. But I do think that he will get into the playoff somehow, some way, even withstanding, the, or not withstanding, rather, the, uh, the penalty that was levied by NASCAR. Now we'll look over to Martinsville this Sunday, Martinsville Speedway. We know that typically you will tend to see a Gibbs guy do well here. Just like I said last week with uh, Denny Hamlin winning, Truex was up there, uh, Christopher Bell was up there as well. We did pretty well last week saying that a Gibbs guy would, would stay up there. We, we had Martin Truex winning or Christopher Bell. Neither guy won, but I'm pretty sure they are both leading at some point in the race. Uh, of course, but their teammate did in the form of Denny Hamlin. 
This week, of course, Martinsville has Truex Jr.'s name written all over it. He's got three wins at this track and four top fives in the last six races. So if not Martin, though, who do we think could pull off the win on Sunday? And it's kind of ironic because I just bashed these two guys in my two main takeaways from Richmond. But Brad Keselowski, hear me out. In his last six races, he has one win, and he's finished top five in all but one of those races in the last six races. I know it's a different team, Penske and so on, but he has history of doing well here. And then, of course, Chase Elliott, which, if you recall, he has a win, and he's won one race, and his last six starts here, and he has four top fives as well. So he has historically done well here. He didn't. He had not historically done well at Richmond, but he has historically done well here. And in fact, I believe he won here as part of his championship campaign in 2020 as well. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to say that Chase Elliott could win this coming Sunday. Lastly, Tyler Reddick, right? Tyler Reddick has one top 10 here in four career starts. And his average finish is around 16th or so. But we've talked about the speed that he has in this particular car. We have a new car this year, and he has done incredibly well in that car. I would not be surprised if Tyler Reddick goes out there and does some pretty incredible things in the first run at this racetrack in this new car. So at Martinsville, it's only fitting that Martin Truex Jr. should win the race, get his fourth win in the last seven races there. But... If not him, I could see Brad, I could see Chase Elliott, I could see Tyler Reddick, I could see any of those guys going out there and winning the race. So I'm not going to say Truex Jr. because it's too easy, right? I feel like everybody, if you were to listen to any sort of uh, you know, pundit out there this week, you'll, they'll probably talk about it on Sunday as part of the Fox pre-race. They'll probably say Martin Truex Jr. should win the race on Sunday. So I'm going to try to give you an alternate opinion here. And I'll say that Truex, again, should win, right? But I'll go with Tyler Reddick or Brad Keselowski as my guys to win this coming Sunday. On to story number three. It wasn't too long ago that I said that I would be surprised. I would be shocked. In fact, I emphatically said it would not happen. I said that I did not see the NFL overtime rules changing. Of course, there was a renewed call after the uh, Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills went to overtime in the uh, AFC Championship game, I want to say, or maybe, no, I guess that wasn't the AFC Championship game, the AFC Divisional Round, uh, because then, of course, the, uh, the Chiefs and the Bengals played the next uh, week, I believe. So when it came out last week that the NFL had decided to change their playoff overtime rules, it only applies to the playoffs, but change their overtime rules, uh, I was kind of shocked. And I was kind of angry, honestly. And I'll get into some of that here in a moment. But I was a little angry, kind of annoyed based on this rule change. So just a little bit of context. If you didn't get to see all the little, all the little intricacies here of the rule change, so it guarantees that both teams possess the ball at least once in overtime. So, of course, the prior model, if you were the receiving team and you scored a touchdown, then that ended the game right there. The, uh, d- the defense did not get to touch the ball from an offensive standpoint. So that, that eliminates that possibility. Now, of course, the defense, even if they allow a touchdown, they have the chance to respond. And if they do, they go into sudden death like we are familiar with. 
there were three teams that voted against it. And I love those three teams. There were three teams, uh, Cincinnati, Miami, and Minnesota. Like I said, I hate the fact that we were doing this. So I am all for those three teams, and I appreciate their support um, in, in trying to fight this movement. But, of course, it didn't get too far. So why was I angry when I saw this? Why was I annoyed? Why was I frustrated when I saw this new decision that was taking place when it came to uh, playoff overtime games. Well, it's absurd to me that it took 12 years, because then I believe these overtime rules came out in 2010, the original, the ones that we most recently had. It took 12 years for the NFL to decide that they needed to make a change, right? Do you know how many great games were impacted by their formal horrible rule? I am not disagreeing that the, that the formal rule is bad, right? I thought it was terrible, but... It took you this long? Do you know how many games you just royally screwed up and ruined because you did not change the rule prior? Well, let's go through a couple of them. Of course, Tim Tebow, right? When he was playing for the Broncos, he went out there, had a miracle. His first play from scrimmage in, in overtime, throws a slant route, uh, slant pass over to Demarius Thomas. Demarius, Demarius Thomas, I think, breaks a tackle or two, runs straight up the sideline, and, of course, the... Uh, the, the Denver Broncos win their game advancing to play the New England Patriots in the divisional round of the playoffs that year, eliminating the Pittsburgh Steelers. Should the Broncos have won that game? No. Was Tim Tebow even a good quarterback? No, and I say that at full risk of Florida Gator fans having an issue with me, but I'm, I, well, that's a rock I will stand on, and I will stay there, that Tim Tebow is not a good quarterback. Nonetheless, the Steelers never had the chance to try to show off whether they deserve to be in that game or not. Russell Wilson, right? He had a ridiculous comeback in 2010 for the Seahawks. This was in the NFC Championship game against Aaron Rodgers. We've discussed before that I am a Packers fan. So surprise, surprise, a couple of these are going to be Packers entries. He had staged this ridiculous comeback in 2015 to, uh, to take the game to overtime. And then the Seahawks get the ball to begin overtime. He denies that this rule denies the fact that the opportunity for Aaron Rodgers to get the ball and keeps us potentially from an Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady Super Bowl in 2015. And then just a year later, Aaron Rodgers does everything in his power to get the Packers to, to overtime, throwing two Hail Marys in the, in the process. It was ridiculous to watch. And then, of course, the Cardinals get the ball to begin overtime, go down the field, win the game. Aaron Rodgers did not get to touch the ball again. Two straight years, the Packers and what is now a two or three-time three time NFL MVP did not have the chance to touch the ball in overtime. And then, of course, we are familiar with the 2019 Chiefs-Patriots game where Mahomes, who uh, without a doubt is one of, if not the best quarterback in the NFL right now, and he did not get to touch the ball in 2019, paved the way for the Patriots to advance further in the playoffs that year. Of course, it broke the camel's back. We saw it. We talked about it not too long ago with the Chiefs and the Bills. Buffalo had an incredible game. Josh Allen had an incredible game. But yet, they get to overtime. The final was 42-36, to 36, right? And that was, it was over in the blink of an eye with Patrick Mahomes leading him right down the field. And then, lo and behold, the Chiefs win. And the Bills don't get to touch the ball. I get that this was a bad rule. I understand that this was a bad rule. But why did it take so long to get here? Again, as a Packers fan, I am frustrated. As a football fan, I am frustrated. Let's also take a moment here to just again praise what college football has done when it comes to overtime rules. We saw it in the Iron Bowl this year. 
I, I know some people complained about it, right? But I thought it was a it was a beautiful way to handle things from a safety standpoint, and also from like a just a true you don't know what's going to happen uh, standpoint. You there's so much surprise and intrigue that take place in college football overtimes. In the NFL, for so long, it has been so bad, and even now I'm not convinced that it's a whole lot better than it was. Yes, it's going to be great that the other team will get the chance to get the ball, but even still, is this as good as the college model? I am not convinced quite yet. In fact, I would say that this whole rule change, rule change is just another example that college football is substantially better than the NFL. Now, I'll get off my soapbox here, but I maintain that this overtime reform is just another example as, as far as how college football is and how incredibly uh, more advanced they are than the NFL at this point in time. Now, that will end our show today. Of course, we have a wild weekend of sports ahead, and I always say that, but particularly this weekend. If you've been watching the headlines, you know that Tiger Woods looks like he'll be playing this coming weekend at the Masters in Augusta. Uh, I don't know how he's doing it. I'm going to be looking forward to watching it. I would encourage you to watch it as well. We also have some spring games this weekend. On April 9th, we've got Kentucky, Auburn, Texas A&M, and Tennessee all playing their spring games which will give them an opportunity to kind of test things out, understand who their guys will be, who their starters will be this fall. And then, of course, we're about a week and a half or so away from the return of the USFL, the United States Football League, with Alabama's own Birmingham Stallions and a few other teams in the South as well. So a loaded weekend for us and and a couple weeks ahead. So I hope you are looking forward to that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, I thank you for allowing us to talk some ball with y'all.